Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. And welcome to All the Things. This is the show where we discuss all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And as you can see, Monique's seat is empty tonight. In fact, we have sent her away. She is hiding in an unknown basement at the moment. She'll talk more about that in just a moment. But welcome how you doing i miss you guys good to see you you guys what a week this has been so i've been in tennessee i am at the auntie's house y'all i got sent away to the auntie's house so i'm at the auntie's house auntie elisa and i am finishing up and loosely that's a loose kind of definition but i'm finishing up um writing our book so if you remember giving tuesday on giving tuesday we specifically um raised funds for a book project so we have been approached by a publisher um who asked us about writing a book and specifically looking at 10 of the most common questions that we've received in our ministry regarding race and so we are deeply in the waters of writing that book and to be able to to concentrate solely on what's on what I need to write. I came to Elisa's and y'all, I have moved in. Y'all, when I say I will take over your house. <laughs> yeah. So I am taking over the children's home and I am here until sometime in April. So yes. Well, with that, let's do a little setup for the conversation we have tonight with Dr. Doug Grutheis. Now we're going to be talking about a topic called standpoint epistemology. I know it's a really big word, probably one of those words, epistemology, that your college professor wrote on the the board at some point, and you thought, am I ever going to need to know this? Well, I'm going to tell you, today's the day. Today's the day you got to know a little thing about epistemology, but here's why. If you are teaching in a Christian school, you're a Christian school administrator, you're a pastor, elder in your church, any type of ministry leader, I want you to walk away from the show tonight knowing some of the key buzzwords that you might hear that would be a tip-off that standpoint epistemology is in play uh, in your space, in your leadership as a person um, in Christian ministry. And so this is a growing a kind of framework that's out there and it is really transforming how we think about uh, truth, how we think about even things like how we interpret the Bible, um, how we recruit for leadership is a very big issue. So Monique, why don't you share a little bit about how we met Dr. Grutheis? I um, first became acquainted with at the Evangelical Theological Society, um, ETS. And it was this past November in Denver, Colorado. And um, his name is Doug Grutice. Doug, how are you? I'm doing well. Good to see you. So can you give us a one-minute introduction of, you can take more than one minute, but just a brief introduction of who are you and where are you at and what got you interested in talking about standpoint Mm -hmm. epistemology? 
Yes, well, I've been a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary for 30 years. I'm an author, and I wrote this book called Fire in the Streets about critical race theory. And one aspect of critical race theory is standpoint epistemology. I touch on it in the book, and then I gave that paper back in October to expand on the idea. But, you know, for any ideology, for any worldview, you have to ask, why do you believe it? Why do you think it's true? What are your reasons for taking it to be objectively true? So epistemology simply is the theory of knowledge, how we come to know what we claim we know, the sources for knowledge, the tests for knowledge, and so on. And I understand knowledge to be justified true belief. So the belief has to correspond with reality. That's what truth is. And then the belief has to have some evidence or some reason backing it up. So um, if you want me to just go right into what standpoint epistemology is. Go ahead. Yeah, it's really the support in many ways for critical race theory. Critical race theory, uh, in a nutshell, is the idea that we need to divide society by race. The race is the most important category of anyone's identity. And in America today, uh, the white race is responsible for just about all the problems of people of color. And typically what people mean by that is is African-Americans and Latinos. Uh, Asians are not really included, although (laughs) they have color too. They're They're not white, but Typically, the way this plays out is it's a neo-Marxist view, and instead of making class the determinative category, race becomes the determinative determinative category uh, for understanding oppression and who is oppressed and why they are oppressed. So standpoint epistemology fits into this by saying that, excuse me, those who have been oppressed and marginalized, have the definitive viewpoint on what has happened to them. So this disqualifies people who have not been oppressed from having a say or having a viewpoint. So uh, it's certainly legitimate to ask people, uh, how have you as a African-American woman or as a Latino uh, experienced American society, what has happened to you? Have you been discriminated against? That's all perfectly legitimate. But standpoint epistemology goes beyond that and says that uh, by virtue of being in the oppressed group, you have a comprehensive understanding of, of the way society works. So it goes beyond the first person what is your experience or what they often call lived experience to what is the overall situation in America today with race. And it automatically disqualifies people who are not people of color from having any kind of legitimate perspective on racial issues. Yes. Yeah. What, um, gosh, you, you hit on a, a ton of points that I think are important to, to kind of build out more. One of the first things you said was that instead of being, um, instead of looking at like class mm-hmm. oppression or, um, this 
looking looking through the looking glass kind of of you know how are people marginalized or set aside by class kind of what uh, Marx's original goal mm-hmm. was it's now to look at race and mm-hmm. to look at people who um may have been historically oppressed or um may have and at this point in time it is usually and correct me if I'm wrong some form of history of oppression, um, history of marginalization that by skin color, by race, they yeah. have an it's almost like another level of knowledge. Like because I'm a black mm-hmm. woman, I have a knowledge regarding racism that you are unable to access. Mm-hmm. So I automatically can know when racism is happening. Something like microaggressions, for example, a microaggression is something that would happen to a person of color that does not happen to a white person. It also is something that I know when it will happen but you may not necessarily know, not because you haven't experienced racism or, well, technically you wouldn't be able to experience racism. You could experience prejudice, but because of the standpoint that I sit in, my my social location, my social yeah. location gives me a specific knowledge that some people cannot access. Is that correct? <clears throat> yeah, that's it. Definitely. And it's true in one way and not true in another way. So it's true in terms of your autobiographical experiences. So when our cities were aflame in the riots of 2020, I called up uh, several African-American friends of mine and just asked them about their experiences of being black men in American society, because obviously I don't have that experience. And it's interesting. I asked about the police And I asked one friend, do you think you've ever been pulled over by the police uh, just because you were black, because they suspected that something might be wrong? And one of my friends said, "Uh, yes, definitely. The other one said, I don't think that's ever happened to me. (laughs) And, uh, you know, both had been black all their lives and were about the same age. So that is significant. And as a Christian, I want to be able to be sympathetic and even empathetic to people who have experienced problems and injustices that I have not. But where this goes wrong is on the level of formal epistemology. So if knowledge is justified true belief, we need adequate justification to have knowledge. So if we're dealing with matters of racial injustice and race relations, we need to know a lot of things. We need to know history, you know, what happened in slavery in the United States, and how much does slavery still affect the African-American community? That's a historical, empirical, economic question. And it's not the case that if you're black or yellow or red or blue, you have insight into that simply on the basis of your racial identity. That's a matter of social science. Uh Or if you're talking about what economic policies tend to empower groups that have been economically disadvantaged. That's a matter of looking at history and economic theory. That's not primarily a matter of, well, what do people of color think about this? It's a question of the facts at hand. Now, my favorite economist of all time happens to be an African-American. You probably know who I'm going to say, Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell. And I dedicated my book, Fire in the Streets, to him because... 
uh, while I give a Christian, I try to give a Christian assessment of critical race theory, I need to know something about the facts on the ground about race and economics. And I think that he has provided a tremendous resource on that. But I don't go to Thomas Sowell because he's black. I go to Thomas Sowell because he's brilliant and because yes. I've been reading him for 40 years. And he has really informed my understanding of wealth and poverty and race and economic development and so on. So it's like standpoint epistemology takes a true insight and then inflates it into something that really leads us astray, ultimately. So sometimes in, in the standpoint epistemology, people who are not people of color will just be shut down, period. Yes. So you might remember, <clears throat> excuse me, at the the talk that I gave at the Evangelical Theological Society at the very end, someone basically said, how can you speak to this because you're white? And I said, well, because I have facts and arguments, and that's what you need to work with is facts and arguments, not pigmentation. And I think that's one of the dangers of standpoint epistemology is that it sets up a framework where someone is automatically right or automatically has truth without evidence, but the only evidence that they do put forward is their skin color. Mm -hmm. And that's problematic because, well, what if they're wrong? You know, being a minority exactly. doesn't yeah. necessarily make you right. And just because you have a certain experience doesn't make your experience, capital T, truth across the board for every person, as you gave the example with your mm -hmm. friend. Right. Well, that's the issue. And it's a question of how do we how do we acquire knowledge about things that are important? And one source of knowledge is personal testimony, autobiography, biography. But we've also got to look at history and economics and a lot of things that transcend uh, pigmentation, you know, that transcend yeah. racial identity. So that's my main concern with standpoint epistemology is that it narrows the scope of evidence wrongly. Uh, but I wouldn't go to the other side and and say that <clears throat> people's experiences as people of color are somehow irrelevant to the situation or irrelevant to public policy. I think it's extremely relevant. And uh, I need to listen to people who are different from me and uh, consider their experiences and how they have been treated. But as you said, we can make mistakes. Uh, you can think you're discriminated against because you're black or a woman, and maybe you're not, maybe with some other reason. And then, of course, people are discriminated against because they are uh, women or black or something like that. But a standpoint epistemology just insulates one perspective from any real criticism. So if, if I criticize a perspective, let's say, of a critical race theory advocate who's black, on this viewpoint, the immediate assessment would be, well, that's a racist perspective. Uh, you're white, so you're criticizing this person on the basis of their being black. And if I'm criticizing it, it's actually on the basis of my philosophical convictions. Uh -huh. uh, it has nothing to do with the skin color. So where did this ideology or philosophy come from because i don't 
I mean, I think you can maybe trace it back in history, but I'm not sure of the all of the thinkers that, you know, maybe put their thoughts in a blender all together to come out with standpoint epistemology. How do you see this being formed? Well, I think the deepest roots are in Marxism, because Marxism claims that a lot of people suffer from what's called false consciousness. They can't see how the matrix of oppression works out because they're blinded by the system. But some people have a vantage point, that is the Marxist ideologues, have a vantage point to know how oppression works. And as Marxism developed into neo-Marxism through critical theory and then became critical race theory, the idea was the the gold standard of evaluation would be those who are racially and sexually oppressed. So we've got to talk about intersectionality here as well. So it's not merely whether you're you're black or a Latino or a Latina. It has to do with, let's say, are you female? Are you part of a sexual minority like a lesbian or um, homosexual or transgender? And it was really Herbert Marcuse uh, that opened up the categories of who the truly oppressed are And so they have this uniquely qualified perspective on reality, given their oppression. But see, it's all through a Marxist lens, which has no room for God or objective moral values or human beings being made in the image and likeness of God, and therefore all having rights as human beings. It's a materialistic worldview based on uh, a bad view of history, a bad view of economics. And uh, I often say out of Marxism, nothing truly good really comes. And that's the root of all this, of standpoint epistemology is a type of Marxism. And I think the most recent predecessor probably comes out of feminist philosophy, uh, because, and I mean, secular feminist philosophy that Uh, Women have historically been oppressed and marginalized in various ways. And so we need to listen to them, you know, and not listen to the voice of the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, there's, there's some wisdom to that. But when you make a partial perspective, the only perspective, you shut down possibilities for knowledge. And that's what I'm concerned about. Because if you take standpoint epistemology as the standard, then it really can become a knowledge stopper if uh, people's standpoints are just wrong or if they've extended uh, their judgments too far. So let's say it's one thing if uh, an African-American man tells me that he has been repeatedly uh, roughed up and treated badly by the police over decades, I'd say, that's horrible. Uh, That should not happen. We need some kind of reform to make that not happen or not happen as much. But that person's experience doesn't make him or her an expert on what it means to reform the police, right? That requires some social science, some criminology, right? So even if you identify a problem, you have to say, okay, it's been a problem for you. Is it generally a systemic problem in policing in the United States. And if you look at the work of someone like Heather McDonald, 
uh, in her book, War on Cops. And she has a new book coming out. I'm excited about too. It hasn't appeared yet. Uh, she says, sure, racism exists in police departments, but it's not the sort of systemic pollution that a lot of people think. And the answer to this is certainly not to defund the police. In fact, if you defund the police, you will hurt the very neighborhoods that we're concerned about because uh, neighborhoods that maybe are made up largely of minorities and may have higher crime rates and something need solid policing. And if you take away that policing, uh, they're going to be in worse shape than before. But you see, one view would say, you know, well, uh, African-Americans are oppressed by the police. We know that. We experience that. Therefore, defund the police and everything would just kind of work out. You know, that's a very bad epistemology. It's also a very bad anthropology because uh, red and yellow, black and white, red, whatever it is, all colors have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Mm -hmm. We have this old problem called original sin. So we need the police. I mean, we need to repent and have Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But societally, uh, people are not angels. So yes. We you know, need, in oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say we need the structures of civil government. This is true. You know, when I listen to you talking about, you know, the there could be a black man who had been repeatedly roughed up by the police. And so, you know, is that something that we would want to discuss, do more research on? Definitely. But we don't take that one case and then make a policy on it without warrant. You know what I mean? So at that point, you ha- you have to ask, well, what was happening that he encountered the police? Was he just, mm-hmm. you know, walking down the street and now they've chased him down? Or, you know, was he participating in illegal activity? Who were the police officers involved? Do they have a history of, you know, roughing mm-hmm. people up and, you know, mm-hmm. things like that? So I completely hear what you're saying and, and, and encourage all of you who are watching, you know, this is how we get to, as believers, we get to truth. We look for evidence. We don't just run with the latest, you know, word that's out on the street of, oh, we need to defund the police because, you know, these two people of any ethnicity were, you know, harmed by by police officers. What is the evidence? What's the true story? And then another thing, um, you know, that that you pointed out was that, yes, we do want to make sure that we have perspectives that aren't our own, but we're not even, but, and an encouragement in that is that we as believers, we are slow to speak and we are quick to listen. And in our culture right now, what I hear a lot of is, well, you know, as believers, we have to be quick to listen to the stories of people of color. Mm-hmm. And so, at CFB, at the Center for Biblical Unity, you know, we encourage listening, period. Like, we don't have to offer a caveat to, you know, who am I listening to? As a believer, I'm going to listen because you're my brother or you're my sister. <laughs> the next thing that I, that your, what you were saying led me to think about was the function, like the the purpose of standpoint epistemology. When we think about, um Marxism, and we think about Marx's, you know, and and Marcuse. I think Marcuse definitely um, took this cultural idea Mm -hmm. of Marxism um, or, you know, this more 
contemporary critical theory to another level. Um, and so what do you think the the purpose is in in standpoint epistemology? What is the the end goal trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very left-wing kind of neo-Marxist perspective. And another problem is that if people hold the standpoint epistemology, they will not hold to a respect for free speech because the American ideal in the First Amendment is that uh, Congress will make no law respecting the establishment of religion or uh, prohibiting the free exercise thereof or prohibiting the freedom of speech or the press or assembly and so on. So the idea, and we're still, we should try to live up to this, is that you ha- if you have an open market- marketplace of ideas, you hope the truth will emerge through dialogue and debate. And everyone should be allowed at the table, right? But if you hold a standpoint epistemology, then the oppressed people have the voice we need to hear and everybody else needs to shut up. So going back to Marcuse, he wrote an essay, oh, what, 50 years ago? called Repressive Tolerance, I believe the title was. And he said, we should not tolerate views that are different from the views of liberation. And he meant neo-Marxism. We shouldn't tolerate them because if we allow those voices of, of the owners, of the powerful, any sway, they'll discontinue to oppress everyone. So in fact, we should not tolerate the speech of the oppressors. And the way that translates into standpoint epistemology is we need to listen and take as authoritative the voices of the oppressed as they define oppressed. That's another discussion, right? Right. And uh, the voices of the oppressors don't have the right to be heard. In fact, they, they should be silenced or those folks should actually be canceled. So instead of let's have a debate, it's this view is automatically correct. And the views of the oppressors are automatically wrong. And they're not just wrong, they're dangerous and poisonous, so they have to be silenced. Yes. Right. When you think of Marcusa, when you think of um, the the continuation of Marxism through the Frankfurt School and, and looking at bringing, you know, this economic Marxism um, into the broader culture, and the the idea that Marx really stood for the emancipation of the oppressed people and revolution overall. Mm-hmm. I personally, not trying to lead, you know, the conversation, but I personally see us going that way through the use of standpoint epistemology. Would you, do you think that's a fair critique? Like that standpoint epistemology is working to usher in some mm-hmm. form of like societal revolution or um, emancipation of those who are considered oppressed? Well, that's the vision. And classical Marxism predicted that the workers would rise up against the owners and engage in a revolution. And then there would be something called the dictatorship of the proletariat. And eventually the division of labor would go away. And to use Engels' phrase, the state would wither away. One of the stupidest things ever said in the history of philosophy. After the Marxist revolution, no private property, no profit motive, no exploitation, 
no need for the division of labor, which is just intrinsic to culture, and the state will wither away. There'll be no classes at all. Well, Marxist predictions uh, have failed completely. The revolutions that occurred in Russia and China didn't go according to the Marxist framework, the Marxist anticipation at all. They were not really led by the proletariat, and they certainly did not bring emancipation to the masses. Uh, it's been estimated that in the 20th century, Marxist governments were responsible for about 100 million deaths of their mm -hmm. own citizens. Mao Zedong, perhaps 60 or 70 million people of his own people were executed by the state. For what? For being counter-revolutionary. And tens of millions were killed and imprisoned in uh, the USSR. And of course, there's been oppression in Cuba and today in North Korea. Marxism does not bring liberation. And so in the 20s and 30s, these German intellectuals, part of the Frankfurt School, realized that things are really not going the way they should go. In fact, America should have been the place where the revolution occurred mm -hmm. because it was capitalism, the private property, the profit motive. And so Marx expected and wanted revolution to happen in America and in Europe, and it didn't. And so these intellectuals, instead of junking Marxism, which they should have done, they said, well, let's, you know, let's, let's kind of refine this. Maybe people don't know how oppressed they are. We have to tell people they're really oppressed. And the culture oppresses them. It's not just economics. It's the features of culture, like the arts and architecture. Everything is just set up to oppress people. So we need to tell people that they're oppressed. And they're also oppressed if they're a sexual minority, if they're a racial minority, and so on. And so the idea was, we still need a revolution, but we have to convince the oppressed that they are truly oppressed so they will revolt and the revolt doesn't have to be necessarily a violent one it can be a cultural takeover yes so there was a thinker an italian uh marxist named gramsci mm -hmm. and he talked about this idea of bringing the revolution to the culture one institution at a time now he didn't come up with this phrase but it's very much a Gramscian idea is the idea of the long march through the institutions. So look at the 1960s and the kind of student activism, riots in the streets. Well, eventually that calmed down, although there were still a lot of bombing and riots in the 70s, especially with black power groups like the Black Panthers and others. But what happened with a lot of those students? A lot of them went into government, into education. And so those Marxist and neo-Marxist ideas begin to infiltrate education, politics, media, and everything else. So it's like this long march through the institutions. And here we are with the riots of 2020 and the, the kind of critical race theory ideology that we face uh, from the top down at the Biden administration. We face it in state educational institutions and so on. 
Oh, I'm I'm so off of our questions. I'm so sorry, but this is so good. Like, um, it's something that I personally have been thinking about, especially in um the conversation of this, you know, cultural revolution and um how do we how do we I'll put it this way. One of the things that I noticed with Marcusa was this vision of increasing the who the proletariat was, increasing right. who are these who are the oppressor class classes. And so when we look at, you know, going from the proletariat or the working class into now including the sexual minority, what Marcusa actually started um with looking at minorities, looking at blacks during like the black power movement and all of that, looking at the civil rights movement. And then, you know, expounding that into the sexual revolution. But today you mentioned Mm -hmm. intersectionality earlier. Today, the the oppressed groups and who we are convincing are oppressed has grown as long as my arm. It's, you know, you have children who are oppressed. You have any religious group that, you know, is oppressed. Poor people are oppressed. Women are oppressed. Blacks are Mm -hmm. oppressed. Um, The disabled are, you know, automatically oppressed. This idea of, you know, who are oppressed has to grow. I personally think, and you can let me know what you think, but it has to grow. It has to expand if there's going to be true revolution. You have to convince tons of people that they are themselves in need Mm -hmm. of emancipation. Right. And you have to make them angry and discontent. And you you also have to tell them that the fundamental ideals of the American system are corrupt. So you have the 1619 Project saying that America is built on slavery. Yes. America was built by slaves. And slavery informs every institution of American life, and it's all corrupt from the beginning to the core. And that simply is not true. Uh, America, for a long time, was not living up to its creed in the Declaration of Independence, And it had to be worked out. Slavery had to be abolished and women had to get the vote and we had the civil rights movement. But the foundational ideals of America with the Declaration of Independence that we are given certain inalienable rights by our creator, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and the First Amendment and so on, and then with the abolition of slavery and the civil rights movement, we have moved in many ways in the right direction for greater rights, freedom, and opportunity for people. But what critical race theory people say is that's all a ruse. That's all a deception. The civil rights movement really didn't accomplish very much. People of color are still systemically oppressed. And the only way to help them is through socialism and top-down control of the economy and of employment and everything else. And that is not the way to empower people or give people freedom or opportunity. Not I do only. a shameless plug for my yeah. book. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 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 it's not even shameless. We are going to do that because I have read that book and that book is on okay. fire. Yes. Good. Good. Yeah. Yeah. We'll definitely um, promote that again okay, at the end. You. And um, we want to let people know that we have Dr. Grutice's white paper on our website. You can go there and check it out. So if you want to have a good takeaway tonight from the conversation on standpoint epistemology, Go check out his white paper. Just go into resource, the resources tab, click on white papers, and you'll see it there. And there's also a link to his book on critical theory called Fire in the Streets. It's so uh, good. Right at the top. There we go. Bob's putting it up you on know, the screen. There. Somehow I think white paper is not a good description for this. 
<laughs> Given it could be oppressive. No. Yeah. So, and the, the paper that's on our website is his ETS paper that Monique was referencing earlier. But I would love to um, talk a little bit about, and hopefully, I, I had to drive over here, so I, I don't think you've, you've covered this yet, Monique, but I wanted to talk a little bit about how standpoint epistemology is coming into um, Christian higher ed and as well as seminaries. Have you guys talked about that? No, we haven't. Okay. All right, cool. So that was really kind of the main, my main agenda item of why I wanted to have Dr. Grutice on because I'm seeing this um, with alarming rapidity coming into evangelical seminaries and churches. Um, And I have done a ton of research on Christian higher ed and trends and all of this kind of thing. And so I would just like to kind of start off this part of the conversation with an open question on wondering, Dr. Grutai, since you've been in academia for 30 years in the seminaries, what are you seeing? Am I making too much of it? Um, You know, what are you seeing in terms of the inroads of standpoint epistemology into um, our Christian academic spaces? Mm -hmm. I think it's happening across the board with many institutions because people don't have the critical apparatus to understand the problems with standpoint epistemology that I've tried to lay out. And I think a lot of Christians can be easily deceived because there is so much in the Bible about standing up for the oppressed Mm -hmm. and repenting if you're oppressing the poor and so on. And so people see those kind of passages they would find in Isaiah or Jeremiah or Malachi And then they find uh, someone who's advocating critical race theory, and they think, well, this must be the way to understand the whole situation. The Bible says to stand for the the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, and we've got these thinkers talking about how racism has corrupted and polluted our society. And they don't, uh, I'll use a term they sometimes use, they don't do the work (laughs) of looking at the... uh, the biblical text properly and looking at the economic realities. They may have a very simplistic view of how economics works, a very simplistic view that if there are racial, if there are discrepancies among racial groups, the go-to explanation is racism. Mm -hmm. That's what Ibrahim X. Kindi says. That's what Delgado says. And if you learn anything from Thomas Sowell, and I've been reading him for 40 years, you realize that there are so many different reasons for discrepant levels of achievement among groups in society. Uh, Race is one of those. Racism is one of those. But there are things like average age, uh, the values in particular ethnic groups, uh, where people live in the country. So I think a lot of Christians... Uh, because they want to be concerned for, as Jesus said, the least of these in Matthew 25. They just jump on the the critical race theory bandwagon without even knowing what they're doing. Yeah, I think that there's enough similarity in the language. Like you said, justice, oppressed, marginalized, Mm -hmm. love our neighbor, that then it kind of gets co-opted or absorbed into critical theory because... Mm -hmm. Some of the lingo is shared, but different. there's different meanings to those terms. 
Right. You know, I can actually yeah. add to that too. Growing up, you know, in South LA for my, you know, my formative years through, you know, mid teens, a lot of the language that I hear in critical theory or critical race theory, especially, are it's just the conversation, you know, among people in certain inner cities. And so the or it's a lot of the, the same ideas. So if you um, if you look at things like disparities, well, you know, why do white people drive cars and we ride the bus? Well, it's because white people participate in racism. It's because the system is rigged to be able to, you know, pay white people more. But it is it is offered to you as a place of just truth and knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, I, I completely agree, Krista, that, you know, it sh you you share some of these same words or ideas in regards to love and justice and without threading it through to understand, well, who are the marginalized truly? How does the Bible see the marginalized? How are we to treat the marginalized? What is justice? What is love? These ideas get conflated and then you find mm -hmm. yourself sometimes advocating for sinful ideas. Yeah. And here's how I'm hearing it in, in seminaries and is there's a, there's a, uh, an article by Dr. Jarvis Williams on the Witness Collective, which is Jamar Tisby's website. And Williams is a professor of New Testament hermeneutics at one of the uh, Southern Baptist seminaries. And he has an article on there about the importance of, you know, when you're in your home Bible study, when you are in your church group, when you're in your classroom in the seminary, it's vital for you to have black and brown voices who are present in order for you to be able to properly understand and interpret the Bible. There is a book that um, Christianity Today is um, saying is like one of the top books of the year. And I'm about halfway through it right now. It's called um, Abuelita, Abuelita Faith, which is the Spanish word for grandmother. And it's written by a professor down the road here from us at Fuller Seminary. And um, it is all about how you have to have the perspective of the oppressed, the marginalized, in order to truly have a fully orbed theology. These are the kinds of things that I am hearing with, on an increasing amount in our pulpits, in seminary classes, in Christian higher ed. I would really like to hear your perspective on this assertion that we must have people with these certain black and brown lenses mm -hmm. on in order to truly understand the Bible. In order to engage in proper her hermeneutics, we must have these, these people present in the room um, that have these particular glasses and life experiences. Mm -hmm. Well, I hear that quite a bit in the circles uh, that I frequent. And I think it's it's a half-truth that can become a whole lie. So I think people's perspectives, given their experiences, is relevant to seeing what the Bible is actually saying. So the Bible has objective truth that stands independent of anybody's perspective of it. But people's experience may help you to see what's there so, for example, let's say uh, you are an African Christian, and in general, I'm really 
overgeneralizing, but in general, African culture is much more family and community based. And America tends to be in some ways individualistic. It could be that if you have an African looking at scripture, they will see some things there about family and community that Americans might miss. Now, it's not that they are contributing anything to the Bible that's not there already. It's simply they may see something that others could miss. So, for example, I have in my library the uh, something called the African Study Bible. And all the, it's a commentary. No, it's actually the African uh, commentary on the Bible. And all the commentaries on the books are written by African scholars. And I often use that. I find it helpful. But you can't take this too far because if you do, you'd have to say, well, Calvin and Luther have nothing to say to us because they, they were dead white males and they were not functioning in a multi-ethnic community. So we have to just write off what they have to say. I mean, that's not true at all. So when you're doing biblical interpretation, the ultimate question is, did you get the text right using the proper method? It's not let's pull all sorts of different ethnic groups, and then give priority to the ones that don't have as much power. And that's not a good way to interpret the Bible. But still, as I said, people may have a perspective given their setting. It will be helpful to find what's already in the Bible. They're not If they're adding something, if the idea is that the Bible is sort of neutral and then you create the meaning given your ethnic experience, then biblical authority is just out the window. There's no objective binding authority in the Bible, if that's your view. But this is the very kind of language that Monique and I heard in a number of papers at ETS, mm -hmm. not over on the philosophy side where you and your colleagues dwell, but we went to a lot of papers on public theology and hermeneutics and Bible exposition. Mm -hmm. And there were several papers that we attended where people would say they would get up at you know, near the beginning of the talk and, and talk about how they were going to present something through the feminist lens or through the black lens or that sort of a thing. No, we didn't hear anybody say the queer lens, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to put give some money time. on, uh, give it time, give it time, give it a couple years. And we might have, you know, the, the queer theory track at ETS. I don't know. I hope not, but um, you know, but there was all these different lenses and, and when you hear that kind of language, what I want people to understand is that that's a tip-off oftentimes that standpoint epistemology is in play in the conversation. And mm -hmm. so when we think about scripture, our goal is to get to the author's meaning. Our goal is to, whatever our cultural background, whatever wherever we're from, whenever we live, we're trying to get to the actual meaning of the text you know, and, and what the author meant by that. But exactly. that is not the same thing as what people who are advocating for these black and brown lenses mm -hmm. that they want to do. They're wanting to engage in a project and, and um, the author of this, this book of what Abuelita Faith is, says over and over and over again is that her project is to decolonize the Bible. And so in that way, then we ought not to listen to voices like Luther and Calvin because they are part mm -hmm. of the white oppressor group. And I here's a theory, and I would love to hear what your thoughts are on it, Dr. Grutais. 
I think part of what we're going to see is the evolution or the de-evolution of system, systematic theology, where we're going to start re-envisioning entire doctrines in order to, quote-unquote, decolonize them. And that is going to take us down a trajectory of deconstructing um, things like inerrancy, um, potentially the deity of Christ, even the Trinity. I'm wondering if you think that I'm catastrophizing or not seeing something. I would be curious as to what you see as the trajectory there. Well, it could go in that direction unless you have some guardrails in place. And you need the guardrail of using the tried and true grammatical historical method, trying to discern the original author's intent within the literary context. That's how you do interpretation. And when you do theology, you try to see how the various teachings of scripture relate into a unified and systemic whole. And let's bring all qualified, gifted people to the table on that, whether they're uh, Latino, Latina, African, African-American, Chinese-American. Who, who are the good scholars? That's the ultimate issue. But if you start racializing the Bible, if you're trying to, what, decolonialize the Bible? I'm not even sure what that would mean, really. It, it could mean we don't want to listen to the voices of uh, the white oppressors who were responsible for colonialism. So that is just corrupted theology. So we don't want to listen to Calvin and Luther or Jonathan Edwards or something. I don't know. I mean, let's yeah. go back to Augustine. He was African. You know, his his pigment was probably closer to Monique's than mine. He was an African. He was Egyptian, Northern African. So the history of theology is not just white by any means, even Western theology. And you've got Africans like Augustine and what Tertullian also. I think you're hitting a lot of it um, like right at the core. It is the um, white Western European way of doing theology. So any kind of um, hermeneutical method to be able to understand what the originals, the original author's intent was, or how do I um, understand how the readers of this time would have understood the text of, of scripture, the passage mm -hmm. that would be seen as being, you know, part of a, a whiteness kind of tradition or a whiteness, you know, philosophy or way of thinking about it. And <clears throat> excuse me, more more today, I think what many people are looking at is, you know, how does this impact my group today? What does this say to my group, to the Black people today with, you know, within my familial context, my cultural context, and things like that? How do we extrapolate out the truth of that? And so then the truth for me, when I read the scriptures, because I'm a Black woman, is going to be different than the truth for you because you're a white man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's just hermeneutical nihilism. Yeah. But that's the trajectory. I mean, this book that I'm reading, it it and it see Christianity Today has it up as like one of the books of the year. And we're only in March. <laughs> but okay. Um, I I think that it's this is the trajectory that we're on, is that the grammatical, historical, linguistic method of hermeneutics is whiteness. It is colonization. And it too must be deconstructed mm -hmm. so that we can get these 
marginalized voices, um, womanist theology is on the rise, which is like oh, we went to a black, paper on womanist theology at ETS. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, the black feminist view lens is called womanist mm. theology. Mm. So this these things are on on the rise, and my concern is that we are this this kind of stuff is polluting our pulpits. Mm-hmm. It's becoming mainstream in a lot of uh, Christian circles. I can't tell you how many conversations we have with pastors, you know, that are in, they would see themselves as conservative Bible believing pastors, but their big concern when they reach out to us is how do I get the black lens? How do I get somebody um, on my elder team? Uh, How do I get more melanin on my elder team so that I can have representation Mm -hmm. of the, the black perspective, the black Mm -hmm. lens. This is a very real concern for people because they don't realize that they, but they've already started to buy into the minimum, the language. And in some ways, the ideas of standpoint epistemology. Well, let's, let's take a look at that idea of a lens and work the metaphor a little bit. So I, I have glasses and I can see a lot better with these lenses than I can with some other lens. So the meaning of a lens is it should help you see what is there, right? So if I put on uh, glasses with an orange lens, everything's gonna look orange. Everything's gonna be jaundiced, so to speak. So the issue is, is your lens helping you see and perceive what's there, or is the lens actually distorting so you can't see what's there? So that's a realist approach. That's an approach that wants to get to the meaning of the text through proper rational linguistic means. And when you throw that out the window, almost anything can happen. And that's not good for anybody. Because Jesus said, if you're truly my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the truth, I said this 25 years ago in my book, Truth Decay, the truth is not pigmented. The truth is not male or female. The truth ultimately comes from God, who is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the truth, if we find it and adhere to it and live by it, and the power of the Holy Spirit sets people free. You know, the old song, red and yellow, black and white. You know, I use that phrase, red and yellow, black and white, from... Jesus loves me, this I know. And someone said, oh, you can't say that anymore because you left out a skin color. Okay, so what do I, I have to change the children's song to get all the, to get all the skin colors in. But this is a serious, a serious problem. And I'll, I'll give you an example of this. Um, I won't give away the identity, but I know somebody who wrote something in a public forum and it was taken out of context and it offended some black folks. And the person said, oh, it was taken out of context. This is what I meant. And the person that was upset said, it doesn't matter what you meant. You offended these black folks. And I, it was hard to know what to do after that because the idea, I guess, is that if a phrase triggers somebody whoever they are, then you're wrong to have used the phrase. 
period. And it doesn't matter what you mean. It doesn't matter what the context was. And if that's the case, then we have a terrible breakdown of communication. And it doesn't lead to civil interaction. It leads to a lot of acrimony and thinking the worst about people and not giving people a fair chance to communicate what they're actually trying to say. But I think that that is precisely the point that where these this trajectory is going is the in, the standard historical model for interpreting the scripture is to get to the author's intent. Mm-hmm. Any of us who have been married for more than 10 minutes know that when we have a disagreement with our spouse, we find ourselves saying, yes, but what I meant was, you know, that meaning lies in what we intend, what we what mm-hmm. we mean to say. It lies in me as the author. But this project of decolonizing our interpretive methods mm-hmm. renders the author's meaning basically irrelevant. Right. And it's about the perception of the lenses. Mm-hmm. And as James Lindsay uses this analogy of you you need lots of different oppressed lenses at the table in order to arrive at truth, if you will. And when that is a great example, I think, of standpoint epistemology. And the point that Dr. Lindsay is is trying to make is, you know, that this completely undermines how the project of truth actually works. Mm -hmm. So I think when he's going to... Epistemology. That's right. It it really comes down... To epistemology, how do we know anything? What are the standards for truth? And we're talking about interpreting any human document. If the author's intention does not govern the meaning, then you have uh, relativism and nihilism, and then you factor in all the concerns of critical race theory, and it's basically a power grab. It's like uh, the oppressors had the power, now we want the power, and we will interpret these documents in ways that will give us power. And there's Which, no sense of objective authority left if you think that. To me, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, that goes back to what you were saying at the top of this conversation about the dictatorship of the proletariat. Let me explain. Um, when you, when you, when the definition of racism is not objective but is set by the oppressed class and then also deemed as being fluid so that racism is always shifting anything that someone who is in the oppressor class does can be deemed as racism so you're always told don't be not even don't be racist but be Mm anti-racist this is racist be anti-racist but then as soon as you do something because you're not a part of that oppressed oppressed class you don't know that it's actually racism and so now you're participating in racism whether you know it or not and so you get this um all-knowing knowledge, which to me kind of sounds like a dictatorship in regards to what people tell you mm-hmm. you can or cannot do. But yeah. it's a it's a, a ruling class or a ruling class in regards to knowledge of race and, and racism. Oh, yeah, that's perfect. It's this idea that some people are in the know 
and they will tell all the rest of us what the reality is. So it's sort of a, a epistemological dictatorship. Shut up and listen to what we say. Uh-huh. And anything you say will be wrong because you're part of the oppressor class. And we will tell you why it's wrong. And you have to shut up and listen to us and become our allies. You know, allyship. You have to follow what we think. And you don't have any standing to critique or challenge it because uh, you're one of the the bad guys. You know, you're one of the people that has systemically oppressed the marginalized. And that is a knowledge stopper in many ways, because if knowledge is justified true belief, then we need to seek knowledge through good arguments. And an argument can be made uh, a good argument by a person of any color, male, female. The issue ultimately is how good are the arguments? And when when race and gender and sexual identity trump arguments, and when knowledge becomes color-coded, then it's just the breakdown of society. There's there's nothing left. It's a, it's a power struggle. And I think back to this book I wrote years ago, I mentioned it earlier, called Truth Decay. And the one of the main problems is that truth becomes relativized to individuals or communities and texts no longer have an objective meaning they can mean whatever the readers think they mean and so like this i was quoting george steiner this idea of the ancient covenant between the writer and the reader has been broken the ancient covenant is i'm obliged to determine what the author said then I make a judgment about it. I try to figure out what was said. Then I see whether I agree or not. Now it's, I will make the text mean what I want it to mean according to my racial, sexual, perhaps economic identity. And that is a kind of uh, epistemic nihilism. It, it... Exactly. Like, I just, I'm not sure how many people going to to Krista's point, how many pastors are getting it, like are understanding that when you're participating this way, it's, it's really leading and training your people in how to understand knowledge, understand oppression, understand the way that we read the word. It, 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 it sets a framework to say that to me anyway, the scriptures aren't enough. Or to say that um, the the fathers of the faith who may not have, you know, had as much melanin as I do may not be the people that we can trust and listen to as well. Or we need to completely throw them out because they participate in whiteness because they don't, they didn't think this way. Yeah, I like, I I like to say that, if I could just make a point, Krista, for a minute, that, yeah. that sin is an equal opportunity employer. So every human being of every race, except Jesus Christ, has been sinful. And sin plays itself out in different ways in American history. It played itself out within a terribly oppressive white racist system for a long time. But progress has been made. And we're not where we were 50, 100, 150 years ago. And I'm afraid that with critical race theory, standpoint epistemology, those sorts of gains are not recognized and it's 
in the mix to just find deeper and deeper and deeper levels of oppression. And then you have the experts at identifying the levels of oppression. And then they tell us the way the world is and they can't be judged. They can't be criticized, whether it's Ibrahim X. Kendi or, or someone else. And we lose any kind of common discourse based on rational principles, empirical evidence, historical inquiry, and so on. And then we just have the diversity, equity, and inclusion consultants run, running the culture, running the government, running education, and so on. Krista, were you going to say something? I was going to go to questions. Yeah, yeah I want to get to the questions, but just another buzzword to listen for when standpoint epistemology is in play, because I'm seeing it on the chat, is this phrase lived experience. Mm-hmm. The lived experience equals truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and lived experience is somehow kind of this authoritative idea that cannot be questioned. That's right. another red flag that at minimum people are adopting the language of standpoint epistemology. It's really a good idea at that point to begin to probe how much they bought into the ideology of it. Go, yeah. go ahead, Monique. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go to a question that's on Facebook from Carol Yates. And Dr. Doug, it says, how would someone who holds the standpoint epistemology explain the concept of diversity as in diversity that is God's idea in creation in the first place? And what then is the moral grounding for the human conscience? Hmm. Well, I don't think standpoint epistemology allows for a legitimate understanding of objective truth. It's interesting, postmodernism dissolved everything into perspectives. And then it said, watch out for meta narratives, watch out for these big perspectives that have tended to marginalize people. That was like 20, 25 years ago. And now the idea is well, the perspective of the marginalized is true, period. It's, it's the absolute unimpeachable truth of the lived experience of oppressed people, right? But the issue is, do you have the standing intellectually to make that kind of a claim? And that's what I said a while ago. But if you have a, a biblical understanding of truth as correspondence to reality, and you have a biblical theology that God made every human being in his image and likeness, And in scripture, no race is favored over any other race. Men are not superior to women. Women are not superior to men. If you have that basis in your worldview, then you have something to build on. And you have moral absolutes. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Follow the Ten Commandments. Uh, Repent of your sins and seek salvation from God through faith. If you believe that, then you have a really strong program to work for human betterment, for human flourishing. If you deny that, then it just becomes really a house of cards. Mm. Yes. Okay, thank you. The next one is from Jeff Davis. It says, oh, you know what? I'm sorry, we actually actually did that one. Let me see. The next one is from art laughing. Um, Do you think our response to CRT can tend to draw us into a defense of traditional American cultural values rather than being obedient to the Great Commission? 
Well, it could. It doesn't have to. Certainly. Uh, my book, Fire in the Streets, is not a defense of traditional American society. It's really a defense of biblical truth and trying to call us back to the best of American ideals. So the issue ultimately is not, um, are you on the political left or are you on the political right? Although I am conservative in my political philosophy, the ultimate issue is, what does scripture say? What does God call us to in our day? And then also, we should strengthen the things that remain. There are many very good things about what has been called the American experiment. And years ago, there's an African-American commentator out of Denver, and he wrote a book. I love the title of this book. It was called Find a Better Country. So <laughs> America has a long way to go in terms of, of fairness and justice and opportunity, but find a better country. I think we've done very well in many ways, but it is an experiment and the experiment could fail. We could lapse into tyranny, and I'm afraid we're we're getting closer and closer to it for a variety of reasons. And the next question is from Jeff Davis. He says, is standpoint epistemology believed by its proponents? Are they true believers or do they use it as a mechanism used to move the culture in the direction they want, similar to the noble lie? Mm. Well, I'm sure there are true believers out there, and there are also ideologues that will use ideas to accomplish what they want. I think yeah. it's hard to be consistent with standpoint epistemology because truth is a lot bigger than the standpoint of oppressed groups. Uh, and oppressed groups or oppressed individuals or those who are taken to be oppressed, maybe they're not even oppressed, simply can make mistakes. So, you know, let's think about intersectionality for a minute. Let's take three levels of intersectionality, intersectionality, female, African-American, and lesbian. You could find a female African-American, well, obviously lesbian, uh, man's not going to be a lesbian, uh, who's a tenured professor at a state school who makes lots of money and is never going to be fired and has a lot of influence. Now, I want to ask, how oppressed is that person just because she's a black lesbian. Mm -hmm. I don't think she's oppressed probably much at all because she is a black lesbian. So those categories are just too simple. Now, could she be mistreated in various ways on various occasions by people because of her intersectional identity? Yes, she could. But do you want to say the entire American system is corrupt uh, simply because that may happen from time to time? I mean, we did have an African-American president for two terms. We have an African-American vice president right now. So how far are you going to push? America is systemically racist. And we know this because of standpoint epistemology. I think it ultimately uh, breaks down. I mean, there are systemic problems. Uh, I think actually a lot of the systemic problems are the welfare state and disempowering people who are economically not well off by telling people that the state has to solve your problems. The state has to subsidize you. You need reparations. You need everything 
and anything because the white man has oppressed you. Those people like Shelby Steele is one of my favorite writers on race. He's African-American, says this takes away the idea of agency and opportunity. You have to wait for the oppressor to free you instead of taking the opportunities and possibilities that are before you. I kind of jammed on that question. Sorry. (laughs) That's okay. I went a little beyond the question. Thank you so much for doing this, Dr. Grutais, and just enduring with us on a very unusual show. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much. You've been super helpful. This has been a great conversation. We've had several discussions on standpoint epistemology Mm. over the last three years, trying to tackle it different ways. This has been very helpful. And um, just looking forward to continuing get to know each other and yeah. understanding your project. Yes. I want to let people know one more time uh, about your book, Fire in the Streets. They can get it on Amazon or wherever people buy their books. Um, it is from Salem Books, mm-hmm. which is the same publisher that Monique and I are having our book come out with. Oh, good. With Salem. So go check it out. Fire in the Streets, how you can confidently respond to incendiary cultural topics follow dr grutice on twitter and social media follow his work check out his books he's a real veteran of apologetics thank you so much yes thank you very much that book is fire literally you guys that book is fire read that book um i read it right after ets and just so helpful good yeah let me just say one other thing i have a webpage that has the very uh, unexciting title of douglasgrotheis.com. <laughs> it's recently been updated and you'll find lots of articles, links. Uh, you can get my weekly blog. You can sign up, subscribe for that. I've just recently updated it. I think it's a lot more user-friendly. And also I'm available for speaking at churches, Christian organizations. I can speak on issues related to apologetics, social issues, cultural critique, uh, any number of things. So I'm available for that kind of thing as well. Very good. Thank you so much. And um, we will look forward to continuing to follow your work. Thank you, Dr. Grutas. Amen. I appreciate your work. Thank you so much. God bless. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. All right. And with that, we are going to... Be back in two minutes. We're going to hear from our friends at Birmingham Theological Seminary and Impact 360. And then we'll come back with a little adventure that Monique had this week. You won't want to miss this. You don't want to miss it. (laughs) We'll be right back. If you want to know the worth of a seminary, go take a look at their graduates. Our graduates are all over the world. They're planting churches, they're revitalizing churches, they're translating the Bible, they're starting discipleship movements. It's heart-shaking, life-changing, and just mind-expanding of what God is doing. You know, sometimes I really do have to pinch myself that what I get to do with the ministries at BTS, the engaging with the students and the impact that God uses us to have on the lives of our students, it's a pleasure, it's an honor, and it's a joy. Jesus is still building his church. So we need to equip the pastor teachers who equip the saints. We need to equip the elders who shepherd the church. And I am grateful that Birmingham Theological Seminary is available to be a part of the expansion of the kingdom of God in these very crucial days.
I'd always heard in church like go and make disciples and they'd always say that verse and I'm like I don't really know what that looks like at all and then when I got here they taught me like everything I was curious to know about like progressive Christianity and how to talk to an atheist and how to go about witnessing to someone without it being overly preachy or insincere and that helped me so much. It's just been such an awesome week, you know, going through these questions and really diving into them. And not just with me, but other Christians. It's not like an individual thing, it's a together thing. We're really strengthening our relationship with the Lord personally, but also together. We have been given the greatest gift. We have been given life. And Propel has really made me realize once again how important it is to share that gift with the millions of people out there who don't have that gift that's just ripe for the taking. Once again, that's our friends at Impact 360. That is about their high school summer camp experience. Monique and I are going to be speaking at that. And if you remember our friend Seth and Nerva, who were on the podcast at the, like toward the end of our last season, uh, they're usually the worship leaders at the summer camp experience. So make sure you go check out Propel. And there's a few seats left, but it's filling up quick. So go check it out. It's a one-week camp experience for high school students. Just a great, safe place for your high school student to ask their tough questions and share their honest doubts. Okay, Monique. So this week, um, well, actually just yesterday, something happened where oh. uh, you were on the Jesse Lee Peterson show. And I'm going to play the 90-second trailer that he dropped on Wednesday and then have you tell us about your experience because it was a little unusual. It was special. Yeah, go ahead. Let's go to the tape. Next time on The Fallen State. You were a Christian and a social justice warrior? I was. Eventually, I understood that this is not the way. They used the word racism in order to cover up the hatred of their hearts. Racism, because it's an attitude of the heart, can be found in any community. Have you noticed that when women take over, everything go to hell in a handbasket? No. You're going down the wrong path. No, 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 no. Hold on. Don't know me. Satan is the god of woman? Yes. That is, that is, I would venture to almost say heretical. <laughs> These are fun questions. But fun for who? This has been very interesting. <laughs> yes. Okay. First of all, A plus on your facial expressions. <laughs> oh yeah. Anytime you want to know what I think, just look at my face. <laughs> it's, it's bad. I, I don't have a poker face. I really should work on that. But today. So, all right. So little backstory really quick. Two weeks ago, Jesse Lee Peterson reached out to us, wanted a media appearance with you. We had seen him on the Uncle Tom uh, documentaries mm -hmm. and you had even, um, you know, had kind of researched him a little bit. And so when the, the request came through, you were like, sure, I'll do it. What you went into it thinking what he, cause he sent over the questions ahead of time and it all seemed fairly standard. Yeah, it all seemed very standard. I figured that um, from some of the things that I had heard um, or seen him say, especially like in Uncle Tom or like some other, you know, tidbits of interviews and things like that, I thought, oh, you know what? He's probably an older gentleman and we might have some cultural differences because of our age. 
Um, he's also from the South. I'm from the West Coast. And so, you know, we've just seen different things. He grew up in a completely different time than I did. And so that was all I was thinking. But if you go to this interview, um, if you watch this interview, you will see that it's a little bit different than just some generational differences. Um, So the first half, he asked you a lot of questions about race and racism. You think it was the first half? I felt like it was the first four minutes. No, it was about the first half. And it seemed like he asked you a lot of very open-ended questions. What in the beginning kind of seemed like he was trying to maybe get you into some gotcha questions or trap questions because they were a little unusual in how they were phrased. Because you've done a lot of interviews and you kind of have your your standard routine. But um, some of his follow-up questions, you know, maybe like some light pushback. But um, he asked you five times. I counted it. He asked you five times. Uh, whether or not the Bible condemned racism. Uh, I don't know if you remember that or not, but I do. I mean, part of it is that some things were edited and so they were moved around differently from what um, I remember how they were. And then there were some things that I was just like, oh, I like what happened to the rest of this conversation Um, or the rest of the pushback. But you know, I, I would say that it was a small portion, not, you know, the majority of the interview. But he did. He asked me like five times, what is racism? And so I want to make this point here because I do think that, you know, or not what is racism, but what does the Bible say about racism? It's a really important point um, is that the Bible, and this is something that you and I even, you know, went back and forth about. The Bible doesn't necessarily condemn the sin of racism. Not overtly. And not overtly. And this term. is this yeah. is where I think people can get tripped up is that the word racism itself isn't in the Bible. So there's no Bible verse that says don't be racist. And that's what he was pushing me to um, to say is that, well, the Bible definitely condemns racism, but the Bible does not condemn the sin of racism itself. Because in the biblical time, like when the words were being written, the idea of racism itself it wasn't it wasn't a thing the way that we think of it today because the idea of race was not a concept the way that we understand race to be a concept today so it'd be we like can, saying does the bible condemn driving cars it's exactly. like well, cars have, have nothing cars. to do with the bible that would be anachronistic to read cadillacs back into genesis like that yes that has nothing to do with it and but it, go ahead yeah so it's like when the, the idea of categorizing humans by their skin tone and physical features is something that another horrible idea from Immanuel Kant uh, yeah. that really is sort of at the historical foundation of that. So you kept trying to explain this 45 different ways. Like, well, and I think it was just that he had an, uh, a push or an agenda, like something that he wanted yeah. me to say that I was not going to say. You I was not comfortable with, yeah. with saying, because I'm not comfortable with being anachronistic. Like I have, I can't answer to you. I have to answer to God. And so I can't be like, well, the Bible says don't be racist. No, the Bible does tell us though that we don't participate in partiality. We shouldn't slander. We shouldn't hold hatred in our hearts. Like, you know, how do we participate with each other? And so when we think about racism, we can think about it as ethnic partiality, hatred based on ethnicity or um, national, you know, origin or region of origin or accent or things like that and slander based on those things. We can compile, you know, the sins that are in scripture and say, well, this today 
would be racism. But what I can't do is say here, racism, the Bible says, don't be racist because that's our 2023 way of thinking, not your, you know, yeah, 396 BC. So then after he kind of couldn't seem to trip you up on issues of race, then he turned the discussion into your views on women in ministry. And he was on that conversation for a good chunk of the time. Now, that's not something that we really talk about. It's not part of our ministry. There is a certain irony in a ministry founded by two women, but this was not our idea. Um, But I thought you did a great job of making it clear to him, like, you know, I'm not a pastor. I don't claim to be a pastor. And you were trying to, in the beginning, kind of politely tell him, look, I'm here on behalf of the Center for Biblical Unity. We don't take a particular stance on this issue. I have personal opinions, but that was really not enough for him. And then he took you down a rabbit hole that ended in him saying, the God of women is Satan. Yes. Oh, there was that part. That was great. That was, that was a big fun conversation. Here's the thing is that, um, and I was, I, I don't, I don't think I, I don't remember if I said it and it was taken out or um, I don't, maybe I didn't say it at all in the interview, but coming from, you know, some of the religious background that I come from, you know, I've had a myriad of thoughts about women in ministry and women in leadership. And as the Lord is walking with me through, you know, some of these ideas and really getting clarity on what is, you see, he wanted to talk about the the order of of humanity and that all men are over all women. Oh, that I was said, his view. And he wanted that was, that you to his view. And he, he wanted, wanted you to, to affirm take a position, that because, agree or disagree on that. Yeah, to agree or disagree on that because I am a woman. And so, um, and because I am a woman, then I need a man to lead me. I am not opposed to being married. I'm not opposed to submitting and things like that. But just a random man can't come up and lead me. I'm sorry. Like, no, we don't. And if I'm if I'm out of order, the Lord will have to show me. He's going to have to send Gabriel now, somebody like that, because you, Joe Schmo, can't come up and just, you, hey, boo. Nah, we, ain't, we ain't doing that. The devil is a whole lie. I am not having it. Um, but Well, you've been fairly transparent, though, from the beginning yeah. of the ministry that you were a progressive, you were pro-choice, you, 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 you love Jesus, but you didn't have a lot of training on the historical Christian faith. And so you had some ideas you were affirming when we first met of, you know, women pastors and lead pastors and all of this. And you're thinking privately is on its own journey. And it's something that we don't really discuss in public because it's not really part of the ministry. And, but he, (laughs) he was not having it. He didn't want you to be in any kind of process. No, and, and he Candy tried to politely push him to the side, but he wasn't having it. And but the thing is that I also can't. And I, at one point, I had to say, "Well, I can't." You know, I can't answer that. That's something I'm still thinking through. And so, Candy um, on the YouTube page. I mean, yeah, YouTube. She says, um, and even though she was clearly expressing her perspective, they judged her need to be clear to as like to be dodging like I was trying to dodge the question and it's just like and so I I kind of paused things and was like you brought me on here to talk about race justice and unity I have no idea why we're over here in this ditch <laughs> you know talking about talking these other about things. the god of women is satan I don't know yeah. how arrived here but you know what I learned so much during this interview um 
And I think it's it's something that I, you know, I'll share some of what I learned. One is that you can stand on God's word. Like going into this interview, I had all of, you know, my answers ready and I knew kind of like the flow of where we were going. So I had thought about like, oh, I can probably answer it this way. I can answer it that way. But at the end of the day, when he started talking about, you know, and you'd have to go back and watch it because I don't even remember all the questions, but I had to rely on the word of God. What does God's word say about his people? What does God's word say about humanity? What does God's word say? And that's what I I could answer with. And then in the places where I wasn't sure, it was fine to be able to say, I'm still thinking that through. You don't have to, to buckle because someone wants an answer right then. Yeah. You can say, I'm still thinking it through. And if that's not good enough for them, then they can keep pushing. Because at that point, should you in, enter into a lie? No. So I was super grateful for that. I think um, another thing that I learned was don't allow the enemy to kind of play with your mind. So I, I I personally will go into like self-doubt and, oh, it was so bad in the beginning. So I posted the interview myself yesterday. Now I went from a place of, I hope nobody sees this is the worst thing ever in life to, you know what, let me post this interview. And now it's out there. And now I can talk about it freely. And if you don't like it, you don't like it. And if you do, and it blesses you, then praise God. But it it isn't going to make me lose sleep either way. Because point number three, I said what I said. And at some point as believers, we have to know that we are standing on the word of God, that we are answering according to the word of God. And at that point, their issue is not with you, but it is with the word of God. His issue wasn't with me. And so there it is. Those are three things that I learned. I, I thought you did a great job. I think Mr. Peterson is, uh, has some deeply confused theology. I don't know how conversant he is actually with scripture. He seems to hold some heretical beliefs. I want to encourage people to pray for him, pray that he will yeah. come into a more excellent understanding of the scriptures. I don't know where he's at spiritually, but um, it's uh, it was an interesting time. And uh, we want to encourage people to go check it out. If you want to also see the live stream, of a live reaction video that uh, was done. Uh, visit our um, Seiko Woods did a live uh, real time during the premiere. And Monique and I were on there commenting live. So yeah, I would actually, um, you know, let me see if I can put Seiko's thing in the comments because personally, and this could just be petty mo, and I will fully acknowledge it. I may be wrong. I don't necessarily want to send people to Mr. Peterson's page just because I feel like some of his views about Black people specifically are racist. Um, I believe that they are problematic. I believe that they are dangerous. Um, and his views on women are the same. And, and so his views I personally, on scripture, I would say, are, are the same. Yeah. And at one point, he tried to trap you into kind of denying the deity of Christ or something. It was a very peculiar question. So Anyways, I, I in yeah. no ways feel jaded or or like upset. I don't, you know what I mean? Like we did our due diligence in trying to, you know, find out as much as I could about him in the time that I had. I was actually traveling during some of that time. And so, you know, it is what it is. Like it happened and that's that's cool. But yeah. um yeah, I don't feel like, oh, I got the the hoodwink and the bamboozle or I wasn't no. It it I feel like it's all good. And so I do wanna oh, I don't know how to and I want to encourage people, you know, to check it out because um, it's a great kind of clinic 
on how to deal with somebody when they're giving you a lot of pushback. Just stay calm. Just notice Monique's example and how she just stirred firmly on the word of God and put that out there. So now next week, you're not going to want to miss our friend Nancy Piercy is going to be here and we will be talking about her forthcoming book on toxic masculinity. And we're going to be asking her, what does that even mean? And um, what is what does she see as some of the attacks that are coming against men? And um, I think we're looking forward to this discussion. Monique read her book, a, a galley of the book, many, many months ago. It is an endorser on the book. And we're yes. really honored to be having Nancy back and hearing her perspectives. And we will be live. So make sure you tune in for that. You guys, it is so good to be with you. We will see you next week. May you have a blessed week and good night. God bless. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.